Okay? So with that, you guys, I'll quit my yapping, and I'll open it up to any questions. When you were going through the Lamb Selection Day, yeah. you tied a lot to the year 33 A.D. Yeah. Isn't there a big discussion about the date sometime, whether it's 33 yeah. or 29 or, you know, whenever that occurred? Yeah, I wish I would have brought my book. Um, I tell you, there's a book that I would recommend to everybody. It's written by a man named Harold Honer. Dr. Harold Honer, he wrote a, bo- wrote a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and he gives a devastating case for the 33 AD. He gets into astronomy and he, and he really narrows it down. So that is the, in fact, the only day or the only year rather that Jesus could be crucified. Now next week, I'm going to actually give us more evidence because Flagin, who is actually a Greek historian, he records on the, at the 202nd Olympiad that there was darkness over the whole land that is correlates to our gospel accounts of darkness. And that actually equates to 33 A.D. So I'm going to show you that next week. So we have extra biblical corroboration of that fact. But if anybody's interested in this debate, read Harold Honer's book. It's devastating. In 33 A.D., it fits perfectly in so many different... There are so many different reasons to adopt 33 A.D. And so I'm, that, that is the date. It's, it's the 10th day of Nisan. That's when he came in. It is, it is spectacular. So thanks for asking. Does that help? Okay. Yeah, oh, Mike, yeah, talk a little bit more about um, your Zechariah 9 or Daniel 9. Yeah, um, you were talking about the um, destruction of Tyre. Oh, yeah, Zechariah 9. And, you know, how Nebuchadnezzar spent 13 years but never did get the island fortress. And then in Zechariah 9, it describes Alexander uh, going through Syria Phoenicia and Philistia, and uh, the destruction of Tyre at that time, and yeah. uh, how the water was used in the, the causeway. And wow. um, it also talks about uh, Jerusalem being spared, yeah. and then it also mentions the Maccabean revolt. Okay. Uh, but my specific question was uh, we celebrate Palm Sunday. Yeah. And what you're saying is that. We're actually celebrating Palm Monday or Lamb yeah. Selection Day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in the book, uh, The Coming Prince by uh, Sir uh, Robert Anderson, yeah. he used the 483-year prophecy yeah. and uh, uh, used that to find out exactly what the events were and like you said, it was the uh, decree by was it uh, Xerxes Longe- or um, yeah, Art Artaxerxes Xerxes. Yep. Longimanus yep. to go back and build the wall and the moat and the streets. That's right. And uh, so he figured from that, and then uh, it brought him right to Lamb Selection Day. Yeah. And um, but I, I was kind of surprised to see that it took place on a Monday, not a Sunday. Yeah, and I'll tell you. Who, who does? He does. He does deal with that. Harold Honer does deal with that in the book. Let me backtrack. Let me just show you something, guys. This helps answer why this is the best case, that he came in on a Monday. First of all, astronomically, uh, using astronomy, we can actually find this out. And Harold Honer talks about this. But let me show you. Here's the last week of Christ's life. Realize, if he comes in on Monday, if he comes in on Monday, then we have a Friday crucifixion. Okay. Now, what I want to just show you is that according to the Jews, they had two different reckonings of a day. 
So think about this. When we get to Thursday, Jesus ends up celebrating his Passover with his disciples actually on Thursday. But Passover was actually on Friday. Okay. Now, this is going to sound a little confusing at first. Passover technically was on both Thursday and Friday. Now, what do I mean by that? The Jews had two different reckonings of a day. The Galileans followed a system where the day went from sunrise to sunrise. The Judeans, their day went from sunset to sunset. Now, the Sadducees who are in charge of the temple, they know they have a quarter million lambs that they must sacrifice. And they wanted to make amends with the Pharisees. So what they allowed was they allowed the, um, the Galileans to hold their own reckoning of a day. So Jesus is actually holding Passover according to the Galilean reckoning because, remember, that day started the 14th at sunrise. Okay, does that make sense? Well, the Jews, the Sadducees, they celebrate really, in a sense, the next day because their 14th starts at sunrise. And that's why when you read in John chapter 18... In John chapter 18, when Jesus is already arrested, um, in fact, hold on, let me just find the verse so I'm not steering you wrong. In John chapter 18, there's a very interesting passage. It talks about how the uh, Jews are preparing for Passover. Yeah, here, in verse 28 of John chapter 18, it says then, remember, now this is on Friday, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. Remember, that's in the An Antonia Fortress. And it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat Passover. Remember, Jesus is already arrested. He's already celebrated Passover. But again, Jesus celebrated Passover on the 14th day of Nisan too because according to the Galilean reckoning, a day started at sunrise. But the Jews here, they're following the Judean reckoning and Passover would have started at sunrise onward. Do you see what I'm saying? So Jesus celebrated it Thursday and he's right and the Galileans are right because he's... I mean, that's according to their reckoning. And then on Friday, you have the 14th according to the Judean reckoning. Does that make sense? And that's why you have the Jews preparing for Passover here on the Friday, whereas Jesus has his Passover on Thursday. Does that all make sense? Just two different reckonings of a day. All right. And again, the Sadducees allowed it because they had a lot of lambs to kill. They couldn't get it done within a 24-hour period. So they thought, hey, we'll throw a bone to the Pharisees. They'll be able to keep their reckoning of a day. And that way we'll have a longer period of time where we can slay the lambs. They had a quarter of a million lambs to slay. That's a lot of lambs, okay? And that enabled, uh, helped them to do it. So I think that's, and again, that's in Harold Honer's book, and you can read about it if you get, again, the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. Does that help the discussion? Just to clarify, Eric, you were saying that the Galileans started their day at sunset? Yep. And so that was Jesus. I'm sorry, celebra- it's at sunrise. At sunrise. sunrise. So that yep. was Jesus celebrating the Passover on Friday morning? No, it would have been th- it would have been Thursday. Thursday. So there. Yeah. So his day goes from sunrise to sunrise. Right. Or to yeah, from yeah. Does that make sense? Okay. And then the yeah. Judeans didn't. So that was the 14th yeah. for them. But the Judeans said it was still the 13th until sunset. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. And so theirs went from sunset to sunset. Yeah. The the Judeans. Yep. Anybody else got any thoughts? I was wondering if you could comment on. The following um, fulfillments that are yet to happen then with the remaining feasts. There are a couple. The Feast of Trumpets, has everybody heard of that? The Rosh Hashanah, right? Now, the Feast of Trumpets, what do we hear when Jesus Christ returns? Well, specifically the rapture, that we're caught up at the trumpet sound of God, right? 
And so there's probably good evidence that that feast will be fulfilled at the rapture. Okay, now the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a partial fulfillment because in John chapter 1, it talks about Jesus dwelling with us, right? So in a sense, that's the same term that's used back in Exodus talking about God tabernacling among his people, okay? But finally, that will be fulfilled when Christ reigns from Jerusalem and he tabernacles with his people for the thousand years and then unto eternity. So you're right, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles have yet to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming when we dwell with him or tabernacle with him forever. In fact, that exact language is used when it talks about, God talks about that, doing that with us in the New Jerusalem in, in Revelation chapter 21, 22. So, yeah. Yeah. As I do have a Jewish girlfriend. What bothers her so much, and I think it probably bothers other Jews, is that she does know that all these sacrifices had to be made in the Old Testament. Yeah. Blood had to be shed. And she said, I, I don't understand what we are to do now. Yeah. We, can, we are not sacrificing. Yeah, and wow. I told her about the lamb. That's God, right. But, yeah. That's what's here. Do we have a second? Hold on. Let me. Um, While you're looking that up, it's actually interesting. Yeah. I've heard that. Conservative, though perhaps not Orthodox, but maybe some Orthodox Jews today, believe that, well, since there's no more sacrificing, we just need to lead, lead good lives. We need yeah. to be good people, and somehow God will count that as righteousness. But Hebrews says there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Amen. And that's, that's also right. the concept in the Old Testament. That's right. Exactly right, Patrick. I was looking for Isaiah chapter 1. And listen to what the Lord says about the offerings that they were given to him. Now, remember, if the offerings of lambs and goats could take away sins, then we don't need Messiah. But listen to what, and, and remember, if the sacrifices of the lambs and the animals were required for atonement, why does God say this? He says this in Isaiah 1:12 through, I'll go through like 14. He says, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Okay, now these are offerings. Again, these are sacrifices that are being made. He says, don't bring them to me anymore. And then he continues. He says, um, incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath festivals, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, why is he so weary of bearing them? Because the Jewish people, just like people in our day, they thought they could live like the devil. They could follow after the gods of Baal and Asherah. And then on Sabbath, they put a goat in the offering plate, and they're good to go. What God is saying is no. If those sacrifices were required for salvation then he could not say that you, he would have to have them continue. But what he's telling him there is, I can't bear them anymore. Because the reason why they offered all of those things were in faith. And they were in faith because one day the Messiah would do that for them. So the justification, we know Abraham justified Genesis 15:6. Paul picks up on that theme in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was justified by faith. So they look forward to the day of Messiah and the cross. You and I look back to the day of Messiah and the cross. But it's one faith. One act of redemption. And every Jew who was saved in the Old Testament was one who trusted that one day Messiah would come and do that for them. What God was angry is that these people were living like the devil, but they thought they'd throw a goat in the offering plate on Sabbath, and then they'd go follow Baal or Asherah. And that's exactly what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 1. So that might be a good response to your friend to say, no, if it were the case that you needed those sacrifices for salvation, 
then why can God say that he was sick of them and he didn't want to see them anymore? And that's good evidence that, in fact, they were offered in faith of the one sacrifice who would eventually come, namely Jesus, the Messiah. Anybody else? I was just wondering, in the last days then, when the temple is reconstructed and and there's some reference to the sacrifices being reinstituted, could you talk about that at all? Yeah, um, that's a great discussion. In fact, a lot of Reformed theologians, Reformed theologians are typically amillennial, and they're typically replacement theologians. These are people who believe that Israel has been replaced by the church, and they see no place for a millennial kingdom or millennial temple, right? And so what they have to do is they have to spiritualize the passages at the end of Ezekiel talking about the temple that's going to be rebuilt. Now, one of the primary reasons they do that is because they can't understand why we would ever have sacrifices again because Messiah has already given us the once-for-all sacrifice. Well, remember, in the Old Testament, friends, the sacrifices were given as a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. What's to stop God from allowing sacrifices in this new millennial kingdom to occur as a memorial of what's already happened? You see what I'm saying? In other words, if they foreshadowed what was to come, why can't they be a memorial as to what has happened? Now, here's the challenge I throw at those who try to claim that the passages in Ezekiel talking about this new, king, this new temple that will be built, the, the replacement theologians and the amillennialists, they try to spiritualize like the heights of doorways. Well, how can you spiritualize the height of a doorway? What does it mean? And if it doesn't mean what it says, then you can come up with any meaning. So, for instance, let me just turn towards some of the passages. Turn to Ezekiel. I'm just trying to find this where he talks about dimensions. Oh, well, here's an interesting one. Well, I won't go into 44 because that's another. Um, well, here, for instance, chapter 41, the inner temple, 41.1, says, Then he brought me to the nave and measured the side pillar six cubits high. On each side was the width of the side pillar. The width of the entrance was ten cubits, and the sides of the entrance were five cubits on each side. How do you, as an amillennialist, spiritualize that? Because if you're going to spiritualize it, it can mean anything. How do you spiritualize five cubits or ten cubits? So, friends, if it doesn't mean what it says, then what does it mean? What hermeneutic principle do we have to just spiritualize that text? And that's why you'll notice a lot of amillennialists don't spend a lot of time in these passages. Friends, this is talking about a temple that will be rebuilt during the millennial kingdom, and the sacrifices that are going to be made are going to be a commemoration of the ultimate sacrifice that was made, looking back and celebrating the death of Messiah. That's what I believe. And by the way, next week what we're going to do is I want to focus in on miracles. And specifically, I'm going to talk about the resurrection. And I'm going to help us prove that the resurrection occurred without even using the Bible. Okay? Now, we're going to start in the Bible, but I'm going to bridge off of there. I'm going to show you that through secular sources alone, we can prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we're going to show that that actually corroborates the biblical accounts and um, so forth. So that will be kind of fun. And then what I plan on doing, you guys, the next, the last two nights as I thought we would disprove false religions. So we would hammer away at Jehovah Witnesses, uh, Mormonism. We would disprove also Islam. We're not going to take a lot of time on Islam, but I have some good proofs that you can use on the street. Then also Hinduism and Buddhism. I'm going to show you a quick proof that you can use when you're on the street witnessing that's very compelling. You can actually disprove pantheism. So, yeah, Mike. And Oh, yeah, Catholicism too, yeah. I'm going to see how it, yeah, I want to hit that one for sure. And I'm going to actually combine them all because Catholicism is a good one that kind of um, incorporates all the other heresies because we can talk about the distinction between an inherent righteousness, a righteousness that comes from within, 
and an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that comes from without, which is given to us by Jesus Christ alone. So, yeah, and, and we'll hit that one for sure. Yep. Well, you guys, I've thrown a lot at you, and you've absorbed it all very well. I want to thank you, and we'll see you guys next, uh, next Thursday.